Welcome to DigiBarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. This piece is entitled, The Visit of Vulcan Ventures and the Microcomputer Museum Project. On April 27, 2005, the DigiBarn was visited by a team from Vulcan Ventures, Weatherhead Experience Design Group, and others. They toured the DigiBarn for inspiration on a planned microcomputer exhibit at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History. What follows is a tour of the DigiBarn, given by DigiBarn curator Bruce Damer and Alan Lundell. Let's listen. I'm going to visit the gallery. Then make it clear to people that are just passing through in five minutes. Mm-hmm. What is it? You know, so we're trying to hear people articulate that event. Because, you know, people who are dramatic when I say it was the first PC, and you know that's not true, and that's very dangerous. So it's just kind of interesting to hear how you yeah, it's, it. It's a place, it really literally was... They, they saw the, the cover of the magazine, and they looked at the specs, and they said, oh, my God, I could it could be on my desk, plugged into 110 power, and I can put my mind into it, yeah. and I can make it dance, and I can start with a few instructions, and, and I, I, I can get memory, and it's, it's under my control, and I can expand it, but it's not a hack. It's not like the Cosmic Elf, which is sort of scattered all over the place. It's, there's, a, there's the S100 bus. It's like a container. It's a package. Yeah, you don't have to make it all. Yet. You have to make it which all. Which is hard to do. Which then. is hard, and very few people could do that. Yeah, yeah. Very few people could program the timing for the keyboard, and then. But people were doing that, but yeah. it's it's a pain. Right, and then the people that did that didn't necessarily package it for other people to have. Right. So this was the first time that right, they had done it for you. And you realize, wait a minute, other people are having too. There's a community, and the community is really important to have to have that. Yeah. And in fact, in this homebrew uh, newsletter, this is number number four from June, the community's already so strong in the homebrew club. They're talking about the Mets mobile, and John Draper, who is a friend of ours, Captain Crunch, had set up accounts at Call Computer so that you could dial in with your Altair and store files at a certain amount of dollars per, per kilobyte at Call Computer, but then you could start exchanging files and so he this is the first online com- community for for personal computing so they're reaching out and and saying you know the, the, this computer is a community because everyone has these blue boxes and they've been trying to figure out what to do and there's an idea of compatibility whereas if you came to the homebrew club and you plunked your pile of junk down and said look it's a tv typewriter but it's a little bit better they go okay that's interesting <laughs> You know, and no one else had one. No one else had one. You yeah. couldn't connect with them. You couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, that's impressive, you know. So <laughs> it's, really a com- it's really the community that it began because mm-hmm. people had the same things. They, had, this, they yeah. had the same you thing. You make a case yeah. to show that hackers played a role in creating the community. Yeah, and everyone was a hacker yeah. who was at yeah. the homebrew club. Yeah. and who, Anyone who bought an Altair was a hacker. And wanted to improve mm-hmm. upon it next. They wanted, to, they wanted to improve upon the, the, the positive meaning of the word hack. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're actually talking about. And you should talk to, you should talk to Glenn Tenney and Lee Felsenstein. You should definitely We'd talk. We'd love to talk to Lee Felsenstein sometime. I know Kenny Ray, our video person, would really love to talk to him. What you can do is you could get... But if you're doing that whole recreation in the fall, it sounds like a right. It'll be, it'll be good. Yeah. It'll be good. Uh, Draper started his own TV show in Hollywood, right? Really? He's such a character. He's, yeah, he's... I mean, just the little things I've read about him. Yeah, he's a character. How old is he now? 65 or 4 or something. About 65. Yeah, he's been around since 1970. 
one thing you might want to think of doing is the little snippets like like Wozniak describing how the PPA it was a perfect little world and I could you know his he'll he'll repeat that for you you could put that clip in yes. and people hearing that and they hear that excitement and that energy about why computers when he first discovered what a computer was we have the quote from him and we were going to use quotes throughout rather than our own labels so that the people are telling their own story right but does he say that or is he going to say yeah that? he'll say that to anybody yeah i don't know if i have that recording computer history museum did a he did a thing about two years ago they have that yeah, yeah. so they can excerpt they had it with yeah. hopefully reasonably yeah, good quality mics a little excerpt of that would, would do yeah. do well, yeah. um, you because know, he's the historical figure. That so oh, going on because yeah. we better. Sorry to sidetrack you, but it's great to hear you once again. So we haven't made it out of 1976. One of one of the things that was in, was important uh, packaging was always important. That was about packaging, even though people don't think so. But when you look at what came before, it yeah, it's like packaging and standardization. Yeah. And this was about packaging uh, Lee Felsenstein's design for the Sol 20. And here's the uh, announcement. Of course, this doesn't look like anything like the Sol 20. This is sort of a prototype now lost. But you wanted to get on the cover of this magazine. This is your ticket to marketing it. So why is it called the Sol? Because of Les Solomon, who was the publisher of this magazine. So you name your child after. <laughs> The uncle, he's going to give you the, his, you know, put you in his will, right? <laughs> anyway, so uh, there's kind of an, in, I, I pull out the gut, screw in the brains, at least signed. <laughs> Not even sure what that means. But, um, but why was it called the terminal computer? It wasn't because it was sort of the last one. It was because it felt like a real terminal. Oh, my goodness. A real keyboard yeah, and it was solid, yeah. yeah, and rather or some little wooden TV typewriter type keyboard, and but there's a computer in it, so it feels like a terminal, but there's a computer. There wasn't the word PC didn't exist, mm -hmm. yeah, micro computer, computer, but terminal yeah. in computer. And it could do real things like you could uh, do 80 columns, upper lowercase. You could use it as a word processor. Um, electric pencil ran out, and it's really. One of the first pragmatic uh, uses of the computer was a word processor. Yeah, we have some electric pencil manuals. Yeah. By the way, the M-size uh, claim was that people who liked PDP-8s and this sort of stuff really liked that because it looked a lot like yeah, PDP. Yeah, the, kind of the switches. Yeah. Exactly. And MSI was trying to make business systems for small business. They were not trying to be hobbyists. They were trying to be, because this was in the film uh, War Games, but by 1982, this was incredibly obsolete, but it looked like a computer yeah. for, the, for the movie business. Right. These are the guys that were doing the Est stuff, right? They were heavily involved in Est. I don't know. I don't know. I read know. that they made everybody who worked with them go through the Est workshop. Est training, really? Yeah, it became too hectic for some people. So, so inside didn't have a bathroom in the office? <laughs> 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 no. I don't know if it's true. I'm reading one of those. If you were, if you really didn't have the money or the time yeah. to get a big box, you could always get things like the uh, Kim One, which yeah. allowed you to put the hex directly in, so you didn't have to switch yeah. switch it in then there. And MicroChess ran on this, a chess program by Peter Jennings. And there's a special event this summer about MicroChess. It was the first sort of mass market commercial game for that ran on all of these. And this is. This is not an overblown calculator. This is the Kim one in a case, which is 
the only known one to be in a case, which is sort of a weird, a weird thing. But um, this evolves into the Commodore line of computers, the PET and everything like that. There was a lot of skullduggery. Uh, so the chess is really interesting. Chess was, in fact, this is micro chess running on the Terra 8. That's interesting. That, that we do want to have a games game, especially for, you know, the, for the audience that we're trying to appeal to. And I didn't, I, I haven't been able to find from anyone what the first piece considered PC game was. Game was. was. And this well, is it could be. I know, at the Computer <laughs> History Museum, they say, don't use the F word first. Right. But, um, so. Well, certainly I mean, an Altair, yeah, an Altair. I mean, there were. Lunar Lander on Altair early on. Well, the, the game that was being played at the Mitz factory yeah. in that article. Yeah, the, the one that you talked about where they got to, yeah, yeah. take over the world. Yeah, and they were just getting text responses probably yeah. out on a televideo terminal. But, I mean, it's, you know, the one, the first game of life, I mean, um, there's a. In that bite, it shows you how to make the game of life. Conway's from 1966 or seven when, when it was first. Yeah, the little cars. That, I mean, no, it was little blobs that were reproducing, and if they're next to something, they die off. And oh, that's Conway's game of life, and oh, that was okay. that's sort of a perennial game that's been going on all the systems. Sort of an, a little, you couldn't call it an a life game, but it was sort of showing how. Too many creatures are together, they'll die off, and they'll grow on the edges, sort of like plants. I don't remember that. You can do it with blocks. You can do it almost yeah. any terminal, and almost yeah. <laughs> you can do it on paper, on the paper output, you know, panel by panel. That's great. That, that's really interesting. So um, going on. I wish we were joining a huge institution instead of just one gallery. You need a barn. You need a <laughs> five thousand square feet. <laughs> to yeah, um, Zilog had made most of the, a lot of the early ch uh, chips. Uh, this is an internal development machine, a Zilog computer, which was, they didn't make computers, but this is what they used to develop the, the Zilog chip on. Mm -hmm. And then through hooker by crook and certain amount of theft of designs, <laughs> uh, which went, there's a lot of skullduggery in uh, the Trash 80 Model 1. Now, do you know why uh, this, these are all silver, this kind of oddball silver, because this, this panel covers the channel changer on a really cheap black and white TV, and Tandy Radio Shack had tons of these things they couldn't sell, so they ordered the computer division to make the computer match this monitor, so in every, every way it looks like this cheap monitor. So that was a design choice, and it went all the way up to the $12,000 Trash 80 Model 2, so everything was silver. Because of this darn cheap <laughs> that they couldn't move. <laughs> they, um, they originally were, they were going to start their own computer chain stores, too, that was separate from the Radio Shack stores in the early days. Of course, there was the bike shop in Menlo Park, and then Alan worked at one of, you worked in Atlanta. Yeah, I even worked in the first Radio Shack training center in New Rochelle, New York. Wow. My first jobs wow. as a kid, yeah. That was, uh, and they were trying to push other models before this, uh, but this, this was the one that, uh, that finally caught on. And you could get, you could get one of the peripherals. You get the stringy floppy. Mm -hmm. And why is it called stringy floppy? Because mm -hmm. by this point, mm -hmm. Waz had um, designed the disc two, and so floppies were in. And this isn't tape. It's 
a floppy, but all strung out. See? <laughs> so it's, it's very much like a Star Trek. Yeah, it's just, it's just another floppy. I'm not, they weren't that reliable. There's a guy here who knew a lot about them and got him on, on the site. It's a tape. It's a mini cassette. It's a mini cassette. Yeah. So they called it a floppy. Yeah, because it's not a tape. And then here, you know, you had. Now understand, this is all, the, the, Apple didn't have a system out. I mean, these systems were out before Apple and really selling. Whoops. This is the, the Commodore PET 2001 series. Yeah, you literally could go under the hood. Yeah, and, yeah, and nice. the ROM basic and yeah. the built-in, built-in. And this is perfect for, the keyboard was unusable by adults, but for kids that had the graphic <laughs> the symbols. Yeah, and the kids could use this to write their basic programs and take them home on tape. But it was a great school computer. In fact, Discovery Channel was here six weeks ago and for the Science of Star Trek program. Right. And yeah. this looks very much like the console on Captain Kurt's desk <laughs> from the back, you know. How they, and uh, yeah, this is the uh, again cartoons. This is the pet manual. Lawrence Krauss doing that. He's on, yeah, he's in, in part of that program. So, um, moving on, the, this is the Apple II serial number 595, which most of them, there isn't much of a difference in the early ones, except you, you better not plug this in because the original switching power supply will go bluey on these. Um, they but have to have integer basic instead of, like I said, Yeah, and the first ads, you know, how to... How to buy a personal computer, and there's your very 70s couple. So she's wearing her polyester here, and he's got his turtleneck. He's writing a check, and little kids all excited about a game of some kind. The happy computer store owner. It's very sort of characteristic of, you know, why would you why would you do this? And um, prototype bits of computers that never saw the light of day. The Brooklyn. This was given to us by the legal department. It was a computer between the, the Apple II and the Macintosh, the Brooklyn Bridge. Ah. And it's a 16-bit, it's 6502 processor in there. Wow. Never, never saw the light of day. Microsoft, people don't know that Microsoft built lots of hardware for the Apple II. Mm -hmm. This is RAM cards for, to run basic, Microsoft Basic better. Ah. And this is the prototype. This is the first joystick for an Apple computer made by Jeff Raskin. Mm. and milled by hand and made, and they plugged it into the game port to make sure they could support a joystick. He and Wozniak wow. did that, and that became the, the cursor joystick. Wow. And bunches of stuff, Apple IIe. This is the Apple IIc that was used in the film 2010, where they're sitting on the beach, and there's a guy typing away on a futuristic laptop, and that was used on the set, and it's all washed out because it was exposed to a lot of sun. Of course, they don't show this hunking brick of a power supply in the, in the film. And then this is um, Apple's, Apple's legal department gave us this. This is a completely loaded Apple III uh, with CPM and ProDOS both. And uh, this is their, from their little museum, which no, they no longer have because Steve said get rid of it all. So part of it's here. Why would he do that, do you think? He just doesn't uh, bother with it? He's got no nostalgic... No, well, he's future. Future. Yeah, it wasn't his drive. Yeah, that was his drive. <laughs> 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 
this yeah. project. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as a matter of fact, um, you should tell them about the the interesting differences in in Oops. philosophy between the Apple II and the Macintosh in the, uh, the open architecture versus closed architecture. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get yeah. to that when we get on this table. Yeah, that's 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 mm -hmm. important. That would be yeah, well, we're coming around to another Paul Allen-oriented thing in a little bit. Um, people forget that there were other countries in microcomputers, and one of the countries was the Brits, and this is the famous BBC Micro made by Acorn, who now make the Strongarm processor, and marketed by the BBC, the, the television division. And um, there was a huge, huge industry of boffins in Britain doing code and whatever on their own. Um, the Osborne, the first port commercial portable computer, luggable computer at 23 and a half pounds, and um, Lee, Lee wrote this on that was really funny. The guy on the left doesn't stand a chance. He's 23 and a half pounds heavier because the original Osborne ad showed two businessmen and one of them's carrying this luggable and, and he's supposed to be the one with the other guy doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> and then there's another ad of someone trying to put the Osborne underneath the airline seat in front of them. And you look at the sad and you think, they're never going to get that under the seat. This is hopeless. But they're trying to show that you might be able to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's stories of Osborne's falling out of overhead bins, almost killing people. <laughs> um, at the same time as Osborne was doing a Luggable system, the grid compass came out. This was the, the modern clamshell laptop, 1982, with a flat plasma screen and the whole bit. Bought by generals at the Pentagon for about 10,000 a pop, probably 25,000 after the procurement. Yeah, this flew on the Columbia. This, uh, this actually came from the grid, yeah. From, um, this came from Ralph Abraham, who's given us a ton of stuff. He's the father of chaos theory down at UC Santa Cruz chaos theorist. Um, and then, of course, the user interface circa 1983 was this, your WordStar template. <laughs> and uh, on the, the K Pro, you still know all the key commands, and control, con X controls Q. And and uh, this this tells a big story, and why it's sitting on this North Star horizon, and Alan can jump in here. The North Star Horizon was the first computer that had built-in five and a quarter inch floppies. But on the boards supporting these floppies are something like 50 chips or something. Huge. And Wozniak, over the Christmas of 77, the Apple II wasn't doing all that well because it was expensive. And it supported a cassette tape. Yeah, he needed those floppies. They needed floppies bad. Yeah. And, and so Woz set himself a goal of designing a floppy controller and he didn't know anything about drive controllers, which was a good thing, because he would have built one that had a whole separate set of chips just to control the, the motor, a stepper motor. But he just said, well, I can just bury the voltages from one chip, and it will work. And his has eight chips, so it controls two drives. <coughs> he wanted to see how many chips he could do, it, how few chips he could do. It. Yeah. And this was insanely profitable and made Apple into the company it was, because they had reliable storage medium and incredibly profitable for the company. The margins were great on these. It's like the iPod today. You know, yeah, yeah. insanely profitable, good margins, always Apple's. Yeah, they can control two drives. Two drives. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, 
I'm sorry if I didn't hear, but we had the earlier floppies who were competing with Apple. Oh, everybody! Everyone yeah, had more stuff. Like when I when I was at when I was at InfoWorld, we first used these uh, for uh, journalist machines. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. Apple was not the first in the game, yeah. but they got the packaging thing right, and then the, yeah. the marketing and packaging thing right, and they had the brilliant engineer who kept solving hard problems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a brilliant marketeer who kept you know pushing, and they had money. They had investment. Yeah. Arthur Rock. Yeah. So all those right little elements. A lot of the stories about advertising and marketing, isn't it? In the end, I mean. It is, yeah, it is yeah. because this, you know this isn't a room full of extinct yeah. dreams. Yeah, I use that all the time when I was but making labels when I was a recording engineer. Okay, so a label program for cassettes that you could churn out tons of labels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a popular machine. Yeah. Yeah. First, first one had a decent size monitor and yeah. actually ran WordStar well. Now this is yeah. this corner is a real Paul Allen corner. Um, does anybody know what this is? You should know. <laughs> you guys have to know this. <laughs> yeah. This this is the machine. That's the Alpha computer product. Yeah, these are extremely rare. I drove to San Diego to pick this thing up because it's wor it's a working gazelle. So it's this SCP Seattle Computer Products machine uh, that ran the original DOS, mm -hmm. Patterson's DOS. See, so they never go into that story very deeply. They always talk about Tim Patterson and how they bought DOS, but you don't know about the hardware. There's, this is the hardware, and there's. I'm not even sure how many of these are, exist, but this is the only one I've ever heard of, wow. and that's why I went and got it. Sorry, a guy, original owner, who had it, and and it's the he called it the mainframe because it's pretty beefy. Yeah. I mean, it's a major system, and um, so here's the story. So IBM, this is does anybody know what this is? <laughs> See, normally I don't ask the audience. <laughs> Quiz. We give multiple choice. Our main researchers are not with us right this time. Good excuse. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is the last personal computer IBM made, really? and has not made a comp personal computer oh, ever since. Nice. This is the 5120. Now IBM had started making smaller microcomputers in the 75, same year as the Altair. They made the 5100, which was kind of like a, a, a flat thing on a on a tall cabinet. They made the 5110, which supported APL and BASIC and had the initial one had a big cassette module. And the 5120 is the next one in the line. And this is when uh, uh, the IBM board met, and, and they had Bill Lowe there, who I knew at Xerox, and, and said, you know what? We're never going to make it into this market if we do it the IBM way. This is the IBM way, 100% IBM except for the screen, because for our legal purposes, IBM didn't make their own tubes. But this thing weighs 120 pounds. Great big honking 8-inch drives. It's completely, perfectly built, reliable, and everything. Very expensive, and no one would ever buy this for the home or school or anything like that. And they realized we're going to miss it. We're, going to, we're never going to get there. And so they, they hired Bill Lowe and a bunch of guys to go out and assemble a thrown-together system out of, that was 0% IBM. No IBM parts, service, sales, software, uh, nothing IBM except the nameplate and the advertising. And it was it was called open architecture, and this is why this platform 
wasn't owned by anybody, and it's why the future history happened and the innovation happened around the open architecture. The previous open architecture was the S100 bus. Right. People forget about that, but that was an open IEEE standard that people hacked. So that, where does that, that's the last mini. Okay, this is a microcomputer. This is a personal okay. computer. This is the, and it predates the open yeah, architecture. Yeah, this is called the 5150. Yes. And, I, and this is the 5120. How long did they take to make this? This is 1978. Yeah. And this is 1980 was 80 to 80. 81 was the release. Of, in 1980, they were already, they had assembled the system. And then Gates and Allen and everybody went down to Boca Raton to port SCP DOS to this. So the, what I'd be curious to know is how long it took them to manufacture that mini compared to how long it took him to get together the... This would have been a couple hundred people working for two or three years. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was eight months, and it was a small team at, at Boca with a lot of outside people and, yeah. and the Intel people and people basically mailing stuff in, hardware and parts. I think the timing on this was September of 81, because I remember... August 81 was the launch. Yeah. Well, there's software. Yeah, I think the uh, Microsoft was one for doing the whole suite of software because I remember flying up to, to hang out with Bill for the afternoon during an interview uh, with him on uh, on the, what Microsoft was doing for the IBM PC mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. September. And it was a complete so, secret. Yeah. It was completely done in secret. There was nobody that knew about it because even in the the Macintosh and Lisa business plan from. From July of 81, there's no mention of the IBM as a competitor in the market. No okay. mention. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know. It was really funny because Draper was designing software for the IBM. He couldn't talk to them. He, he's the guy who used to like to talk about everything. Everything. <laughs> so for him not to be able to talk about it was, it yeah, was so the, the, amazing. And he had served in, yeah. he had served in he had been in jail. So yeah. IBM must have had him done something to shut up John. <laughs> Incredible. They gave him huge know. amounts of money for one thing. Right, and you wouldn't get yeah. your last was he payment. Was software before Microsoft? Yeah, he wrote yeah. Easy Writer when he was in jail. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he went to jail for fraud for other, or something like that? Or it was for the phone freaking. Phone the blue freaking. FCC. Then he yeah. was injured in jail because the mafioso characters wanted the secrets of the blue box and, <laughs> and gave them false information. And they, they, uh, they uh, you know, physically abused him. And uh, he, uh, while in jail, also he wrote Easy Writer, which was a program in fourth. He was a big proponent of fourth programming at the time, and that became the big uh, word processor for the uh, for the uh, Apple II, <laughs> the early Apple II. And he's got a thread through here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, moving on, this is the computer that Apple thought was their doom, the P Peanut, the PC Junior, <laughs> and it had this lousy keyboard. And I worked at IBM in search and development as a student at the time. I remember people from the plant next door that made this thing. This keyboard's a piece so of shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, wireless. You see, that, that was the big innovative and thing. They, they were trying to yeah. dumb, dumb this down so it wouldn't cut into sales of that. And, and they were forced to eventually come up with a real keyboard. Yeah. And that's the, the AT. This is an original AT shipped with no hard drive. This was used up in Alaska in a law firm. And, um, and why buy IBM? Because... In Alaska, <laughs> you want service, you better buy it from IBM. <laughs> you call them stateside. And Nobody's yeah, the guy came here, he came from Fairbanks, and he, he packed this in his luggage. <laughs> it's interesting. Wow. Really neat guy. Those AT, they lasted for years. I mean, yeah, totally reliable. 
that was called Big Top, the code name. I knew all the, because I worked at IBM as a student, I knew all the code names. For oh, the, you were everywhere. Xerox, <laughs> IBM. <laughs> and these systems here, like the Chromenkos, Bill Gates wrote yeah, the basic yeah. for this, they were doomed by, by this. You know, all of yeah, these were now dinosaurs, yeah. You could have a little Tyrannosaurus or a Brontosaurus around. <laughs> borrow something from the other side of the museum. And these spots are not aliens. They're just kind of delamination going on. Yeah, you could have that coming in as the meteor that got these out. Yeah, the great meteor was... We're sort of lucky because we, now we don't have to make too many stretches between the two subjects. Yeah. Between dinosaurs and computers? Yeah, because yeah. now they have a, they decided to move it to a section of its own. Of its own. Which yeah. is kind of a relief because it was a little difficult. Well, it's like uh, I have a friend who works at the Rose Center Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History, and you walk past the big bones and right into the planetarium. <laughs> and they have they have the kind of the Jurassic Triassic impact thing as the gateway between the two. <laughs> <laughs> Now they're extinct, you can safely come and see a space show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so here we have Steve Jobs and, and trying to invent new mercurially great bosses, uh, the next cube. But this is the interesting story here that Alan was referring to. Um, this is an original Mac torn apart so that with the Mac cracker and the special screwdriver, which voided, voided your warranty, so you could see the signatures in the case. And, you know, there's all the people. Right. And Mac, here's, here's a bunch of stories if you have a moment. Well, this is a, if you worked on the Macintosh, you had one of these hats, the Macintosh division. And there's probably only a handful of these left, but if you're on the team, this is from Daniel Kotke, I guess he used it for painting. But uh, Steve Jobs in November of 83 came to the service department at Apple and said, all you people are going to be out of work because we're coming up with a new computer called the Macintosh, which is so perfect it won't need servicing. <laughs> and in the summer of 84, there was an enormous row of, of broken Macs at Apple service uh, with a big sign on the end saying, these Macs do not need servicing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was no fan, so you, you had to have the Mac chimney or Mac and Frost or something to try to keep them from burning up. But the idea, sort of Steve's idea, you know, make a, a beautiful box, close it down, because the original Apple II, Steve only wanted two slots. And Waz said, no, ten slots. You don't understand. Ten slots. And mm -hmm. I, otherwise, I won't work on the project. And so this is the last computer that Waz designed at Apple. It's the Apple II GS. And this is actually a Waz limited edition one. Um, and it's open. It runs the Apple II software. It runs a, a GUI, a graphical interface, uh, from, on the, from the toolbox. And it got knocked out. This is the idea of open architecture. You can really easily add stuff to it. But as Daniel Kaki would say, there were these two cultures at Apple. You know, Steve's idea of building this perfect box you could control and make really great stuff. And then this messy world of the open architecture. And this was hard. He said, truthfully, the Apple II was, was really hard for Apple. They spent a lot of time trying to make sure things were compatible and there's so many manufacturers, and they were facing what Microsoft later faced when they tried to do Windows 95 and Windows to try to make device drivers standard. And they had that room with 2,000 machines and racks where they were testing all the device drivers and certifying them. And Microsoft decided to bite the bullet and say, we have to do it. 
it was it's a bigger problem for the PC side because it was truly open, mm -hmm. and this was killed off. And then Apple sure. killed all the clones, and so then it could control. And then Apple started buying up all the companies like Claris and whatever. So mm -hmm. Apple now is back in the in the, the 80s proprietary mode of, you know, we build the hardware, the OS, and most of the software, but it's perfect. Right. Uh, whereas the open architecture won. You know, there's Linux and there's this and that and the zillion, and, but it's it's a crazy world. And Microsoft stepped in, and now the Linux community said, we'll try to make this crazy world work well, somehow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so one of the things about the open architecture that's so powerful was that it allowed uh, your Matt, a lot of companies to develop products that expanded the computer in ways that, that the company itself never dreamed of. Yeah. Like uh, we used to review cards. Uh, people would make dual-trace oscilloscopes, you know, very expensive $10,000 devices, a single card in your machine, suddenly your computer had that capability. It's remarkable. And uh, just about everybody who had, you know, in, in all the professions were coming up with ideas for their, uh, to, to make the machines useful to them. And it was a very Promethean device, you know, it could apply to everyone. And, and Waz recognized that, and he felt that that should be preserved, that ability for everybody to create things for the machine was really important. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and that's what that embodied. Yeah. And the Macintosh, by, by happenstance, in the closed box that was the Macintosh, the revolution happened because of desktop publishing. Yeah, and, yeah and specific uses for the computer. Specific uses, and that was very much yeah. a software revolution rather than a hardware revolution, mm -hmm. although it was a hardware component to it. And that was where my life really took off, because that was part what I was part of. But there's an exhibit upstairs about that, which we should get to, because yeah. I know you guys have limited time. Yeah, you might say yeah, that... Uh, okay. Yeah, that's really great. Constricting the hardware pushed uh, the brains into creating more freedom in the software. The software. So, so. And if you had a hard disk, you could do a lot more. In a fast enough processor, you didn't need a special board to rip the fonts or the laser printer and things like that. And hardware is gradually get subsumed into software anyway. You know, yeah, custom hardware gets sort of melted in. We do a kind of a transition between showing hardware shrinking and shrinking more and efficient and then showing that the open is really the software in the end. It's in the end, it's um, all software. But if you were part yeah. of the desktop publishing, it'd be fun to hear your story. Yeah, there's a whole... Okay, V-Box, that's Jean-Louis Gasset. That was an attempt to build the next Macintosh. The next Cube became the next Macintosh uh, with OS X. And V-Box came from a guy named Jean-Louis Gasset who had made this horrible product, the Macintosh Portable, because <laughs> Apple people were buying... Dynamax and using them on service calls and because Apple's already getting behind the curve technologically by about 1989 <laughs> or 88 and it was just falling behind because it because of the proprietary nature of everything that's somewhat behind still um, but anyway black Macs these are uh, tempested Macintoshes for use on Navy battleships and by the CIA and stuff like that mm -hmm. so this is a $25,000 Mac Plus with a screen button. You can turn off the screen. Um, oddball stuff. Uh, Canon Cat. This was Jeff Raskin's design. This is his original idea for what the Macintosh would be. There's no mouse, and there was a document interface with very simple controls, no overlapping windows, no occluding interface. And this is his information appliance, another thing that Jeff designed in the 80s. Macintosh TV, which is a sold for only a period of weeks on college campuses and it was yeah. you could you could um, use it as a TV or or a computer or play your 
music CDs and mm -hmm. all in one dorm room desk. Mm -hmm. And this was sold with a really cool Matt Groening School's Hell poster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is one of the oddest things here. This is the um, discovered in Daniel Kotke's basement. This is a weird amalgam of things. Uh, this is the world's first portable musical computer based on a personal computer. This is the oldest piece of any Macintosh in the world. This is one of a dozen prototyping screens that Jeff bought in 1982, ordered and bought in 1982, uh, prototype the Mac. So this is the first part of a Macintosh. Yeah. And Daniel grabbed one of these at the end of the project in, in 1980, built Apple II board, special hardware here to go to a keyboard that could pl both play and record music, and a floppy so that he could re record music also on a joystick. And the, the floppies would be where the music was recorded in some kind of a symbolic way. And he could take this to a bar and play space music. <laughs> and a compositor play it. And so this is actually the ancestor of the iPod <coughs> in some oddball way. It's a portable, yeah, built by Daniel on his own. Yeah, that's a complete, complete oddball. And now we go up into the. They were campus shielded, so you couldn't. There were no emissions. Oh, so it's very secret. Nobody could pick it up. Yeah, although that cable is frayed on the end to that connector, and as according to a Navy battleship commander, he said that screws the whole system, and that's government. Because the two contractors aren't cooperating, and mm -hmm. so the whole so system is compromised. It's really expensive thing that's yeah. not, it's not working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we we plastered the walls here with t-shirts yeah, because t-shirts are the symbol of the medium. Make sure Fran. So Fran, if you uh, <laughs> Fran, the idea was that we would put the t-shirts and stretch them over a, a, a rigid square form, because then you could make a tile out of them and you yeah. could tile and they create a nice soft you could tile a wall with uh -huh. t-shirts and, and it creates a nice softness it's almost like a recording studio uh -huh. <laughs> so it's it's an idea yeah you certainly have quite a few of them this is the this is the thing that Kay our film producer was super interested in the the alto, the alto and the demo with the star and okay. did you actually have any um Come on and let everybody squeeze in here. The Alto is a, is a challenge. Um, this is the workstation Wallow. And this is an Alto 2 XM from Park. And it's a beautiful machine. I mean, this, is, this has got, we actually have extra power supplies even. This is the key set, which is the now extinct peripheral, which allowed you to do many selections and cut, copy, paste, and everything without using the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And Engelbart showed this at the original 68 demo. Mm -hmm. So Keyset sort of lived on in, at Park, but this was used to play Maze War, too, to go left, right, forward, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you could hear clicking of Keysets as people went through the mazes and played it over ARPANET. That, that, that I'd love to know more about sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. This is the, the storage medium. These are two-and-a-half meg disk packs that you loaded in here. And, and you could literally carry your entire Alto world on a disk pack and put it in any Alto. And upcom would come all your documents and environment. 
and Alto's, you know, this is the entire user handbook <laughs> with all the applications, the Bravo word processor and, the, you know, Bravo's Bravo. How many of those were sold, I think probably about 300 of them were made. Yeah. I don't think they were ever sold. It was, in a, it was never sold. It was never a public it was no, it never was. It was a There's research no internal, machine. Yeah. There was one in Carter's White House in the basement. They made all the memos and stuff, and Reagan threw it out and then complained about how shitty all the documentation looked. <laughs> they had a Dover and a and an Alto. And um, so you know, there's the the history of the Altos is fascinating. That's why we did the anniversary event. And this is um, just the one that's signed by everybody. So this is yeah, this is it. So John Truly Brown gave me this in, in the 80s when I went to park, but this is people from our anniversary event uh, three, two years ago. But the Alto is incredible. I mean, Xerox is truly living in, in the future, in all of our futures. There's actually articles in here showing them using it to compose music and, and, and kids using it for music composition. And uh, you know, games you know, on a bitmap display, on a high-res bitmap display, there's windows in quotes. Windows, display frames, it's in the larger screen. You know, kids using the Altos. Xerox is sort of an open place. I mean, you go in there and people were, they really wanted it to be an open door. And, and nothing since then has ever been quite like Park. Including interval. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, the famous fumbling of the future. I took a picture of the signature page. Yeah, that? yeah. Peter Deutsch and Charles Simeone. And yeah. Of course, uh, Charles Simeone created Word at, at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And Word was a direct descendant of Bravo X, which was on the Alto. And if you ever want to know why Word files are so huge on disk, you can just ask him. <laughs> 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 There's a reason. Um, out of the Alto and a number of other machines, including the Dolphin, which is there, uh, came the Star, the D machines. This is the D0. This is the first D0 to, to run uh, something called Mesa, which was Xerox's architecture. And this is early Ethernet. This is ThickNet, <coughs> made with cable television parts. And this is Dave Boggs' uh, drop from the ceiling of Park to his Dorado. <laughs> and they were tearing these out of the ceiling a couple of years ago, and Ken Pierce said, you want this? And I said, sure, because <laughs> Dave Boggs is the co-inventor of Ethernet. Wow. So it's his drop. And uh, anyway. That's kind of like Ed Roberts' parking bumper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. And uh, so the star, you know, had a graphical interface. It looked like this with icons and windows and trash bins and complete oh. network domain. You could have a printer in Washington, D.C. that you drop a document onto and it prints across the network. and you know, in 1980, 81, and, you yeah, know, the star was, was a phenomenal machine, and, uh, but it weighs 120 pounds and draws 10 amps, uh, so that's one of the issues. The keyboard completely designed, you know, center, bold, italics, yeah, it was designed for, for real use, whereas the current PC keyboard is sort of an amalgam of bizarre concepts and Sysrec, which was a IBM mainframe key, you know, it's still there, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, Yeah, and also one thing that was uh, completely lost in industrial design, all the Xerox mice had the pickup, whether it be a ball or optical, right under the fingertip, because their studies showed that 
you then associate the cursor with your fingertip as a pointing device. And when Apple and Microsoft made their mice, they put the ball way back. So mm -hmm. it's like under the, the palm. And as a result, people didn't understand what the mouse was for. Yes, it was not intuitive. It wasn't intuitive. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't a connection. That's really it. interesting. Yeah, so that was another. It's like the QWERTY keyboard, something that was bad design came in somehow. <coughs> and the Xerox Daybreak, the 685s, the brown boxes that replaced the star. And, you know, they sold... You know, tens of thousands of these systems, and mostly in big, in service bureaus and companies and government. But you know, if you walked in in the mid '80s, if you walked in to the CIA or to, you know, Donnelly Directory or whatever, you'd find these people working in the future because they're like, okay, send you the documents and email and complete collaborative computing and you know, domain networks and all that stuff. Um, but by the mid '90s, Xerox was throwing all these in the crusher. And converting over to Word running on Windows 3.1. <laughs> and there was a shock for a lot of Xerox uh, people. Like, my God, we have to use this? It's not, it's not, you know, like, what is Much this? Yeah, it, it, it was stepping back 15 years for them. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. It's a really good Xerox Yeah, and Xerox 820, which is the secretarial workstation of its day, with a touchpad cap. And the perk, this is what OS X was born on, the Three Rivers perk. And our, a bunch of library were ripping all these videos. Um, Silicon Graphics, Sun Workstations, Deck Rainbow, and the Workstation Wallow. But uh, let's go in the next room. So the workstations were an important thread, but um, for a thread that eventually was subsumed by PCs, it became powerful enough. And Alan, <laughs> tell us about these. Well, this is um, really, this is where people had fun. This was the early gaming machines. The famous Atari 400 peanut butter keyboard. Drop peanut butter on it, wouldn't just play it. Compare this to the uh, Volkswagen that was in Sleeper. You know, when you started out. You know, in, in a thousand years, this computer will work. <laughs> <laughs> suburban bedrooms all over the country. And it would be kind of cool to see a 70s bedroom set up with the, these machines and mm -hmm. the sound effects. And, and it would be the happy days of the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then a mom yelling, dinner! <laughs> and we have the one story of the kid whose mom yelled, dinner? And he had taken, on his Atari 800, he had taken the bezel off and he jumped and bounced on his bed and all the keyboards keyboard keys flew off <laughs> and that was the end of his Atari 800. <laughs> and of course this was uh, one of the original Pong versions as well. That's the Simpsons, that's the Sears Pong four, bird, four player, four game Pong. And, and, and uh, Atari had uh, built Much more. I guess you could say it was the beginning of the whole gaming thing. Mm -hmm. Really, that's um, 
And the Commodore 64 was where Habitat, the first multiplayer avatar game, was, in, but Lucasfilm and Don the Dialogue. And I wrote a whole book on on the history of multiplayer gaming, which you're welcome to have a copy of because I have a few extra here. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, and Alan has kindly, <laughs> this is a, this is a, very few artifacts we collect from the 90s because the companies came and went so quickly they were not collectible. <laughs> uh, but one of the great ones is the Audrey, and this is all you need, from 3Com, which was a web appliance. And there's the, it's a beautiful, beautiful machine. It's like Judy Jetson's kitchen stovetop <laughs> computer. And when 1981, when I was getting into computers, I thought everything would be like this by the 90s. You could touch it, but Fisher Price would make a tablet computer that little kid could throw into a bathtub and it would still work. It would work underwater. Um, so why do you think things haven't gone as fast? Well, you've got the old sort of lock-in, you know, monopoly lock-in, uh, the failure of the disaster of the dot-com PC failure um, created a gigantic hole that we're still crawling out of. Um, you know, just just a whole lot of things and, and you, you, you evolution has really slowed down in the last decade yeah. and where you're only you're seeing it is certainly the personal computers no evolution at all for 20 years and one could argue because the star is a modern machine yeah. yeah it's a but handheld stuff and small devices is where it's going on but then you need billions you don't need thousands of dollars you need billions of dollars yeah. to do that to, to make that work yeah. so it's and this is the, the Miko, a touch screen Macintosh inside came outside, a very odd Macintosh. Wow. Um, the network computer, which came and went so quickly that you couldn't document it. Wow. Larry Ellison. The uh, Sony Magic Cap, the Magic Link, remember that with the little desktop metaphor and stuff like that came and went. This is around the time of the Newton. Yeah. It yeah. came and went. Right. And uh, this is the site, by the way if you haven't a chance to look at it. So we have um, yeah. our key stories, our top stories here. And, mm -hmm. and um, we have a little widget called Blobber that tracks the traffic. And then the collections is on a very slow machine here. But so there's just take a look if you haven't, because that's a, the, a lot of the reasons why we're doing things. We have Digibarn TV and Digibarn Radio. And Alan is the commentator for Digibar TV and it's all our short video clips and people have the attention for maybe one or two or three minutes but short vignette stories and Alan's done with about 50 of them now yes. something like That's that so. we actually did search your site uh, a couple of years ago and, 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 and that saw lots of images that we thought were great but we haven't well I haven't I haven't personally been back to it in a couple of years so. Here's now I'm telling the story of his first telecommuting on the North Star Horizon with Cap. And Digibarn Radio is uh, sort of a little bit newer, and it's all these interviews. It's our version of iPodcasting. Yeah, we're going to actually yeah. we're actually going to put a lot of this into podcasting. Podcast, yeah. It's already MP3. And there's just there's hundreds of pieces there now. And there's interviews like J.J. Webb wrote the first virus scanner, and he lives around here, and it's an incredibly funny story. And um, the the guy that wrote Auto that uh, wrote uh, uh, AutoCAD, 
Bill Goldberg on Steve Jobs, you know, last interview with Jeff Raskin. And this is the guy that wrote auto, that wrote the history of AutoCAD and how they tried to make CAD work on a S100 system. And it just couldn't do it. <laughs> it's just so underpowered. But anyway, that, these are two really popular things yeah. because it's just easy streaming media. And, and all of this is under a Creative Commons license. The one Mr. Lessig pioneered at Stanford. I don't know if you guys have looked at your licensing. But um, what that allows, it's, it's a really great license because it allows us to say for non-commercial use, as long as you attribute the original author, you can use it. So it removes copyright as the middleman, which is very nebulous in corporate, yeah. corporate mm -hmm. control. Yeah. And so we use an attribution <laughs> share-alike non-commercial license. Yeah. We actually helped beta test this license for Larry's group uh, cool. three years ago. So there's the, there's the escape clause. So <laughs> basically, if, if we put something up that we don't know where it comes from and if the copyright owner would object, there's an escape clause on every page that says, if you object, and we've never had a single objection of hundreds of thousands of, of things. Nobody said, you know, because most of the companies are gone. And so we're effectively gradually trying to put this into the public domain. You know, and, and because if it goes on for, you know, five, ten years and no one has, and if it ever came up in court, they would say, well, you know, it's been here for ten years and no one objected. You know, it gradually goes grandfather all this material into the public domain. Nobody cares about brochures and extinct companies. But, you know, a quote-unquote formal museum would have a problem, and that's the Audrey turning off, would have a problem possibly do that because they're in a kind of a risk-averse mode, whereas yeah. this project is not risk-averse. It's attempting to aggressively make the collection and the story work. Mm -hmm. So our collection will go into future museums. Mm -hmm. So the future curators and PhD students will grind through the stuff we've collected because we're not afraid to, to collect it. Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't have releases for every interview. You know, we have deeds of gift, but we don't have releases for every interview mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Because if you do that, then people will shut down sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing things that are sort of on the edge. Yeah, that's really, that's great for society. I mean, that's true museum work, preserving the culture. Yeah, there's something, there's got to be something that's not museum-like that's actually doing the gathering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the curators will wait way too long, and then the people are dead. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll they'll have too much... Well, they'll apply a good rigor, but they'll actually, they're, they're shutting out all the materials. And the curators often don't have a background in the field. Yes, that's so that, very true. that's the problem. Yeah, you know, if they've grown up with it, then they, they can, it's like Al. I mean, Al's interviewed probably half the people that have. Well, yeah. you guys are curators. We are curators, you know, sort of. I mean, a curator is yeah. someone who's an expert, you know, who lives and breathes that, whatever that thing is. You know. Alan has like a million hours of video of every party in Silicon Valley since <laughs> <from> 1980. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also wrote the first history book on computer viruses. Oh, wow. Which uh, we're thinking of putting up online because the publisher has uh, long ago uh, disappeared. So you know, we're not sure what the yeah, status is. You know, right? And we have the, the entire book fits on a single floppy. We have the disc in the other room. You have it in the other room, and it says virus on it, but it doesn't mean it's a virus on the flock. So the rest of this room, the beige invasion, everything became beige. It became productized, and uh, 
some of these are prototypes. This is a prototype Amiga 1000. And the Mindset, which is the first video editing personal computer, which is woefully underpowered. Some of this came from the Exploratorium gave us their whole boneyard, oh, really? which was great because they were given these pristine machines. And, and um, Samuel, of course, made PCs that looked like VCRs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on and on it goes. And then on this side, you've got some of the originals. This is the first PC clone, the Eagle PC made in Los Gatos. Remember the story of the man who, on the day the company went public, he flipped a Testarossa uh, sports car into the Lexington Reservoir, which you passed when you came up here, and the company sort of tanked after that. And, and his daughter wrote, I wrote this story up there, and I always put a link that says, do you know anything more about this? Contact us. That invites input. And his daughter wrote, and she said, that's not quite the way it was. And, and I said, please, you write the story, because this is an urban legend. Mm -hmm. yeah. We want to correct it. So she sent his picture and the whole heartfelt, tear-jerking story of his death. Oh. And so now, yeah, the car, it wasn't sure whether he was driving or the person whose passenger was driving, or he was the passenger or not. Really? Who, they, they weren't sure who was driving. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't tell. Yeah, they were thrown, they were thrown out. And uh, the car was like upside-down pancake. And... And the company didn't didn't last much longer. She has a basement full of stuff uh, from Eagle. But Compaq, of course, roughly at about that time, the founders of Compaq, Rod Canyon, and his friends were in the House of Pies restaurant in Houston, drawing this this thing out and saying, well, what you know, what could we do, and how can we backward engineer the ROM? This is the only thing IBM controlled legally to make a, a clone that would be 100% compatible, and that was the whole goal. The BIOS, the ROM BIOS yeah. chip. Yeah, and this is the original, original brochure for the the compact. So that is that wow. one of the earliest. That is, yeah. Yeah, that's the sewing machine. So, yeah. and of course the uh, be <laughs> before this, <laughs> the Osborne had come out, but it was a CPM system. And anyone who sort of started in CPM and then switched to MS DOS or PC DOS. Never really quite caught up, so you don't you don't see you know Capro which had switched or Candy which had switched to building MS DOS machines ever catching up and ever quite having the energy that say Compaq did, or people like OSI Challenger or these enormous tank like systems. That's an original Challenger one. Those are very very rare. That's from Ohio's from Ohio from Ohio Scientific. And there's a Southwest Technical Products, and notice the perforated case, which is now the, the rage in, in Apple's towers. Mm -hmm. So there was a <laughs> Now, the, the problem with the, the, the Southwest Tech, uh, nerds were still in the habit of putting their coffee on top of the boxes, <laughs> <laughs> which is a problem <laughs> as your coffee poured in, if you've ever destroyed a laptop that way. So that's this, this room, and the next room... This tells another story. Let everybody file in. The dove bar. The dove bar mouse. Notice, yeah. notice where the pickup is way back behind the pile. Yeah. 
In fact, if you guys want to see this, this is running Windows 1. So this is Windows 286 on here, and here's a 486 chip. So the evolution. And this will boot up into Windows 1.0. So this is like a, the user experience. <laughs> so the Windows 1 came on two floppies. So we're now booting in on drive A. This is 1985. 85. Yeah. So this is this is actually Windows 1.03. So to start Windows, we just type Win. Mm -hmm. Now this is on an Olivetti AT&T uh, personal computer. So here's Windows 1.03 booting up, and the original Microsoft logo there. They called that the Blibit. The Blibbit? Oh, okay. And it takes a while because it's going to go, yeah, it's going to the B drive and E drive. And now, I still haven't gotten the right connector to attach this mouse with. I've got to, I got to actually make a connector. It's an R232? No, it's a serial, but it's an odd serial. So here's the MS-DOS MS executive. And you'll notice that there's a special menu. <laughs> right, very much like the Lisa Macintosh, and that's for shutting down, so end session, things like that. So this is, you know, Microsoft's foot in the door, and, you know, Microsoft leased a Xerox Star workstation shortly after its launch, and they had one in the office. Everybody was was looking at the Star and the beautiful, complete GUI that it had. And they had this GUI. And then they did this as their kind of foot in the door, and there were no applications for Windows 1, as far as I know. Um, it wasn't. Yeah, and uh, but you can change the, to view the file names by long. Yeah, no, of course there were colors. If you had a color screen, I mean there were there were colors uh, in the in the GUI. But this is kind of kind of crisper seeing it in the in this way. And you can. Uh, the best thing you can do is shut it down, really. <laughs> uh, okay, I have to go to file. Okay. Yeah, there really wasn't any application. Does it do anything? No, it doesn't really do anything. It's just sort of a demo. You know, Microsoft always, that's how they yeah. would, that's how they did things. I mean, they, the first things didn't work, and then they gradually evolved until it actually worked. Get info. We have a perfectly objective audience here too about any comments <laughs> yeah. about Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> There's your info dialog box that tells you what command.com was. And I think all the four, did they did they do that? I'm not sure if they did. No, they hadn't done all that four yet. And that's end session. <laughs> this will end your Windows session. <laughs> so there's there's an icon and but that's that's Windows. That's interesting. And at the at the same time, Let's see why uh, Macintosh wasn't too worried. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, IBM was. IBM was because of the whole OS2 thing. And know, wasn't this a fairly big hog? Uh, didn't it have a lot of DOS behind it? Yeah. Well, it was all it was was a DOS application. Yeah. Really. I mean, yeah. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't an operating system per se. Yeah. It was a shell, yeah. know, which is what. And this is what I wrote at the, about the same time. So oh, this wow. was the, <laughs> the Elixir system, and it had uh, yeah, and pull down menus, and this all ran on an XT. It had to run on an XT with 512k of RAM. 
And generally, you had a, a big screen like the one down there, the Sigma Laser View. It's a 1,664 by 1,200. And you could display a document at 120 dots per inch because this was used by uh, um, 8,000 organizations to compose all their documents and their forms and to do variable data printing, so bank statements, bills, all that kind of stuff. On the Xerox 9700, which was an outcome of PARC, which paid back Xerox handsomely for the investment in PARC. But Xerox had the workstations. They had the high-speed laser printers, 120 pages a minute, but they didn't have a way to connect them together. So a little company called Elixir, which is what I was part of, came in and we made a workstation on top of a regular PCAT that could then do compose documents. You could drive a tape drive. You could, there was a ton of things this did. So it was like a desktop environment. It was one of the first desktop environments on the PC, but it had a complete Xerox look and feel. And you could edit, you could do uh, font editing. I built a font editor. So here's, uh, and I had to build everything from scratch pretty much. So here's here's a pixel by pixel editor mm -hmm. for, because all of all type on computers was was raster. Right. And then there's a document composer, a graphics composer, a job composer. This is me in the 80s with my dog. <laughs> so here's a graphics editing <laughs> system. This had to edit four megabyte images from Caterpillar Tractor that had done all their parts manuals this way. So I had to figure out how to write and read and write from disk and build a virtual memory system and, and everything. So it was basically one of the interesting things about the GUI and the desktop metaphor, there were dozens of people making desktop metaphors. There was Geos and Apple and Xerox and, and Zillions and Microsoft. And they all narrowed down to only a couple in the end. It would be great to see some screenshots of those. And I have on the site, there's hundreds and hundreds yeah. of screenshots, of, including Alto screenshots, yeah. uh, which were Polaroids. They're all Polaroids that were scanned in. <laughs> but that's the, and there was even a t-shirt made for this project. There's the t-shirt showing your oh, cool. logged into <laughs> account shirt. <laughs> And uh, this is the Xerox Docutech, which was an enormous success for them, a big, big, massive printer you find in every Kinko's store in, in the world. And that was actually a kind of a hard thing to do back then to make a T-shirt with a print on it. Yeah, you know? it was. It I mean, was. We don't take that for granted now, mm -hmm. but that was kind mm -hmm. of a big deal. Yeah, with a screen, with an actual screen dump yeah. on it. Yeah, and so that I in the mid in the early 90s, I I moved to Czechoslovakia to set up this lab because we had to support this too. I'll show you this. Oh. <laughs> this is Windows 3.1 or 3.0. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it didn't have, if you look at, you know, how this works, I mean, there's no desktop. There's just a right. bunch. This is floating just around. around. There's yeah. floating around. There's, like, no context. No, it's just Windows. It's true context. to its name. It's yeah. a bunch of Windows with program manager and groups mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so we had to, you know, this, this was an environment you couldn't use to do serious work in the way that we were doing it. Mm -hmm. So literally the Czech team tore this apart and we built a, a, a Xerox-like GUI on top. <laughs> it would run on top of it. And it took about two years and then it was launched and then I started getting really sick of, of GUIs. <laughs> and so I, I came traveling through America in a van in the summer of 1994 and because I thought the next revolution was going to be the internet, uh -huh. but it was going to, the web was out, 
Mosaic was out in 93. But it was like, oh, no, more documents, more overlapping ugly GUIs. Because the net for me, and I've been on it since 84, was all about real-time communication. And I thought that after these bloody web pages will get through that, <laughs> pass through that terrible phase of more documents, you'll end up with multi-user communities like you had in Muds and Moos. And those will go graphical, and you'll have phenomenal uh, phenomena like cities being built in the net, like you read in Snow Crash or Neuromats or whatever. And this would all come to pass because someone would figure out that PCs were strong enough to do 3D real-time graphics, Wolfenstein, Doom. But if you network them, then you can see other people walking around, and you have a shared space, and that'll be the next revolution, which is what is happening right now. So I formed an organization in 95 called the Contact Consortium because I decided I'm not going to code this. You know, it's a dumb thing to code to think about that because lots of people have the same idea. I'm going to form the organizational code and create an organ nonprofit that will have conferences, publish books, have seminars, and have special interest groups on this subject to help catalyze it. Then I get to go around and see all the projects, including Linda Stone at Microsoft. Yeah. And a zillion projects that were commercial, etc. And I wrote the first book on it because I held the first conference, and Alan was a big part of that. And and um, this is the first book on the medium up till '97. That's great. And our company eventually bought some of the technology that was going under. This is Traveler, which is a multi-user voice avatar lip sync environment. We bought the rights to that when the company started going, and did a lot of the first experiments in multi-user cyberspace, which is truly the frontier. There's no standard way to navigate or communicate, and it's all about embodiment of a person. So it's about anthropology and sociology and ethno ethnography and good architectural design. It's about music, sound design. It's about sets. Mm -hmm. It's about movies and theater and, and, and you know, social hosting. And it's the total frontier in computing because it's a human being embodied in cyberspace. Yeah. Uh, and I, um, my, my main application these days is running Virtual World Studios, and our focus is doing shooting videos in virtual environments. Uh, like, for example, the new film Sin City is almost all in virtual space, mm -hmm. and that's the direction movies are going yeah. right now. So we, you know, we've been pioneering blue screen, green screen uh, technologies to put your, put real actors in the 3D space. And that's why it's so, so great, finding that yeah. little cartoon escape. With yeah. The guy yeah, right. <laughs> 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 of all this. And back yeah. in the yeah. summer of 76, this yeah. is what, why are we doing personal computing? Well, it's, yeah. we'll create worlds. So mm -hmm. that's where, and a massive multiplayer gaming, I mean, it keeps growing and growing and millions and millions, PSP and all, that's, that's the, and that's where Moore's Law, I mean, forget about Moore's Law running Microsoft Word using 2% of the CPU, yeah. right? But Moore's Law is really used when you're in a, an NVIDIA board is cranking away, and it's like five times more powerful than the PC it's in. Yeah. It needs its own power supply. It needs its own new, cooling system. And the new cell chip coming out <laughs> now yeah. with eight processors on board uh, can do Shrek 2-level graphics in real time. Wow. We did an online music mm -hmm. interactive in 96 called Riff, where people did interactive music with Herbie Hancock and different people. Okay. That was at Microsoft. That okay. Something that Sue and I developed. And wow. At the time, we, just, we were way ahead of where people could download. You know, yeah. we developed yeah. download while you were doing something else, te techniques. But so a lot, of, a lot of these ideas have been ahead of the technology. Now suddenly yeah. the technology is it's, there. It's really yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Voice over IP is becoming the killer app for bandwidth right now. And 
that allows more of a natural user interface for avatars and virtual space. And yeah. I'll give you copies of the book downstairs. There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, I love that. And and I'm developing these cyber garments because you you can put all this wear with this wears on you, like in Snow, the girl in Snow Crash. Remember, she's got all her wears. And then it tells the garment is its own web server. And so, like, when Al and I go down, we'd be interviewing, we'd interview somebody, it goes through into a little panel that you can do your quick edit, publish it, goes onto the Sun Matchbox size server, and when you walk into a Wi Fi zone, it puts it out. <laughs> because we do this at Burning Man. So you're walking the server. <laughs> the camp at Burning Man was part of does the Wi Fi connectivity for 35,000 people at Burning Man. Oh, and this is the experiment we've always been <laughs> doing. So, I mean, you're, you're an avatar, you're walking through the environment, capturing your environment, and then transmitting. You're either the, the server's all connected live to the net, or when you go out of zone, then it, it, it's at least mirrored itself. Wow. And people can tell where you are, what you're looking at. And then this has been done by Steve Mann and people like that. But the one of the things that has kept it back is the incredible ugliness of all the gear. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's a horror show. Yeah. Yeah. And so the garments that I'm designing with the fashion professor at FIT in New York City. And she hosted the first wearables and fashion conference about three years ago. And FIT is Fashion Institute of Technology. They brought the MIT crowd down. And... The fashion professors could not see the technology. All I could see was the ugliness of everything. <laughs> and, and so I started designing these garments that would fill that gap. So I can show you that later on. Yeah, it's going to affect a lot of laws, too, because people will be like a network. Wherever you walk, you'll be connected, and uh, the idea of no cameras or no light, you know, yeah, it's not going to make any sense anymore yeah. because mm -hmm. you are part of a larger matrix that is moving around and connected. So. Use the word matrix. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too bad that the movie industry has uh, perverted uh, very useful concepts that are way more profound than what they portray. Right, and yeah. yeah. turn it into yeah. something sinister. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. Well, that's a cheap trick. <laughs> we'll, we'll, show, we'll show them with some good reality. So finishing up this room so we can yeah. do our... This, these two racks here mm -hmm. are... what The main thing that's happening in the 80s was, remember, in that 1976 cartoon book was... Opposing computer manufacturers struggle for market <laughs> supremacy. Yeah. This is it here. So OS operating system wars. <laughs> right. So you have yeah. Microsoft World here, including you know Bill Gates unplugged, you know looking at Ben Halen, and you've got you know this is the, the Windows 95 launch special edition for the press version, and you've got you know uh, Jay Leno driving his uh, his mouse car. Right. The launch. Right. Remember that? Yeah, that was a big. Yeah. In all the versions of Windows back to 1.0, and you know, Windows 3.0 has another darker side, and you know, so the fourth community, all the magazines and stuff, and then over here you have everybody else who's competing against this rising power of Microsoft. But of course, Microsoft's doing most of the software, or a lot of the software over here too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's confusing. Um, you know, weird failed things like Taligent and and all the different OSs, and here, which is, this is sort of a, this is the classic, I think, in, in all of these videos. Uh, I can rewind to a good place. This is Windows or, or my, Macintosh. built in, so you can add new components like hard drives and faster CD-ROM drives quickly and easily. It comes with speech recognition and text-to-speech capability. Macintosh, 74. 
So this is comparing Windows 95 with the Macintosh. And they go through the 900 steps to put a hard drive into a Windows machine and F disk and all that stuff. And what's interesting about this sort of a classic video of the era is it made no difference in terms of market share. It was too late by that point. Also comes with easy to use video conferencing technology. So for the cost of a video camera, we can see, hear, and work with someone in a remote location. Of course, people still don't use video cameras for sociological reasons. I love the new color design. It looks great. Now, let's look at what it costs to add the same features to a compact Presario 7180. We need an Ethernet adapter card, a SCSI adapter. For speech recognition and text-to-speech, we'll have to buy and install some additional software. This package is only available if you also buy a sound card. Yeah, but it creates a huge industry. And jobs. And if we want to add video conferencing features, we'll need to buy a package like this. All in all, we'll have to spend more than $1,800 to add the same features to a Windows 95 PC that are already built in on this Macintosh. <laughs> And that doesn't include all the time we'll invest trying to make all of these different components work together <laughs> in a single integrated machine. What are the additional money we might spend to have a PC well, expert do it for yeah, it's always so good. It was really hard to understand why people would use PCs. Oh, it was a pain. There's no doubt. I mean, in our day, if you're shopping for a home computer because you want to join the multimedia revolution, there's only one sensible choice. Get a Mac. <laughs> and of course, the Apple is doing their own studies of PowerPC versus Pentium and stuff like that. And, you know, and yet it's open architecture. Open yeah, architecture was... More people could write more stuff. Yeah, and there was a giant juggernaut behind it. You know, there was Linux to come and all that stuff, and there was nothing to stop. And now Apple finds it in the enviable situation of facing a open architecture monopoly on one side and, and an open source uh, emerging power on the other side. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we'll get down to 1%. We'll just invent something to get out of it. Totally the iPod, yeah. it's just, it's just like they always have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's just invent something. And but in this case, open source didn't put Microsoft out of business because of the operating system, right? I mean, right, right. IBM and S100 versus open source meant competition and obliteration eventually. Yeah, yeah, and of course IBM is the adoptee of the open source of Linux since yeah. in the marketplace, so it has a sponsor. But somehow Microsoft didn't get crushed by, No, and it, you know, it actually expanded because of it. Yeah, well, it's, everything is growing. So yeah. in the in the Apple yeah. world, everything was shrinking. Yeah. So clones get rid of them. Yeah. You know, we can't afford anything to cut into our market share and our, our revenues because everything was shrinking. You can do a lot different when everything's growing. Yeah. <laughs> when everything's shrinking. Yeah. And over here we have the portable world, the the Go system and all the. That's the first computer with a full-sized LCD. The Data General One. And this one here was the was the last K Pro, which weighs about God knows how much. And this is the size of screen it has and what it might have <laughs> one day. But you you couldn't read this. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Bob Glass, who was working on the Macintosh Portable, brought this in 
to the, one of the final marketing meetings before the launch of the Macintosh Portable and said, this failed because you can't read the screen. Why are we launching a product that's the same unreadable screen? <laughs> but um, anyway, all kinds of portables, the early pen systems of the grid pad, and, and of course the Go, which was, um, this was shown to Bill, to Bill Gates. This is a beautiful system with his own operating system, and yeah. uh, the Go tablet. And this is about 1990, and this is what uh, the story that Gates went back and created pen windows after seeing this. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this is 1988, 89. And uh, all kinds of, of portable. This is an homage here to the desktop publishing revolution, which was basically the Mac SE and PageMaker, mm -hmm. driving a Canon laser writer for proofing. And people like Jonathan Siebold, who created the conferences, first conferences around it, and, and um, you know, you had little companies like Macromine getting started. Um, at that time, this is the original Macromine logo and brochure when they were in Chicago, became Macromedia, which is now Adobe, <laughs> soon to be, soon to be Adobe. Yeah. <coughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And. Uh, then you have a table or sort of a bench of oddballs, and uh, this is oddball systems like the, this is the personal computer for a hundred years, the booming of uh, the comptometers in the boroughs, which are hand crank calculators, like Victorian camshaft designs, mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful machines. And the majority of the world's computation was done on these until about 1970. And then they were, it was surpassed by ele electronic means. If you were a nerd kid in the 40s, you know, under the Christmas tree, you, you would get an, a Wolverine adding machine because your parents probably used this at work. <laughs> so this is computing was was, elect, was mechanical for the most part. And Alan can tell you about this. Well, you guys have heard of the French Minitel system at all? No. Well, back in the early 80s, uh, they in France they decided to send people terminals instead of yellow pages uh, really? across the country. It's quite an experiment. They did, they did literally tens of thousands of these. And it literally was a government-instituted uh, terminal program to bring terminals to everyone's home. Um, we, it's funny, we were visited by them last year uh, doing a their French, French documentary crew who wanted to show that this was uh, uh, that actually the French were the inventors of the internet because you know, they, they, <laughs> they had a tele teletext system. Yeah, they had this teletext system way before everybody else did. Um, yeah, it's a debatable issue. But anyway, they did have this uh, this system uh, all over France. Uh, and they, in the um, late 80s, early 90s, they tried to bring this to the United States. Uh, they approached me as a journalist, gave me a couple of uh, terminals and wanted me to, uh, to start using it, you know, maybe write about it, that sort of thing. And, and uh, um, they brought in 50,000 into this country. And they had in, an operating, in English, had an operating <laughs> system in this area just prior to the internet hit. You know, it was uh, interesting timing. Unfortunately, um, it was completely incompatible with any American technology. It had its own unique French modem system, and um, uh, it sort of was a it was an island unto itself as a network. Uh, so it never really caught on, even though a lot of the features on it are very similar to what we can do on the internet today. And but very limited graphics for black and white. Uh, still they had they had uh, you could you had the yellow pages, you could find you had social clubs, you had uh, 
games. Uh, Order airline tickets. The movie, you know, airline tickets, that kind of stuff. Was yeah. on yeah. In Britain, there was one uh, called, uh, there was a, all the countries that had, uh, Canada had press, uh, Britain had Prestel, and Canada had Teledon. They were all like these televideo, teletext. Yeah. Systems. Yeah. I remember seeing one of my aunt's house in England in the Yeah, yeah, they were um, they had a teletext in England, uh, which is a and also in Canada, Teledon. Teledon in Canada. In Canada mm -hmm. Which is uh, it was all before <laughs> Yeah, but it shows you how they network oh, ideas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is my first book. Oh, <laughs> oh that's your book. <laughs> yeah, that's book. Yeah. Virus. The whole book could fill out a copy yeah. of these days, yeah. You have to power up the SE and get we it off there. Some parts of it here. We, don't have we should put it online. Put the whole thing online. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. See what happens. Um, <laughs> so when you talk find about the publisher. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about things like this, and you're trying to make, make somebody young understand why that isn't an internet, how do you distinguish in simple terms how you would say the difference between what people were doing here? In As other opposed words, to the internet today? Yeah, I mean, maybe not today, but at the time, how well, would how would you dispute what they're saying? Well, it was a it was not a, a communication. Well, system? it was a closed system. Everyone couldn't add data to it. Okay. You know, it's not yeah. like FTP access mm -hmm. that we have today. So you could you could get yeah. you could only get things. Yeah. So yeah. Really Everything was centrally published. Yeah. 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 I was much more of a, a limited paradigm. A resource. But you couldn't actually yeah. communicate with it. It was just a resource. Well, you had email. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they did have email. You did have some of those functions. But um, in France, it was the Minitel. It was called Minitel yeah. Rose, like the pink Minitel. People yeah. had these affairs yeah. over <laughs> Minitel. They ran up huge, huge bills. Yeah, that's right. They charged <laughs> a lot for it, too. They charged a lot per yeah. minute. It was that, charged, that's yeah. the thing. In those days, every minute counted. Yeah. And so you really timed yourself to be efficient. Yeah, get in and get out. <laughs> yeah, which gave you a whole different mentality towards uh, what you did with it. Mm -hmm. In fact, the story of why the internet exploded is partially contained uh, in here. Um, this is a 1928 National Geographic. And there's an ad from the Dell system talking about planning high-speed business. Now, this time, Ma Bell was crushing all the little phone companies. It was very much like Microsoft. It was like a network effect. If you didn't run on DOS or Windows, you couldn't sell. Therefore, DOS or Windows extended its monopoly. Here, if you were in a little town and you wanted to make a phone call to the next town, you, you could make calls inside a town through a local switchboard, but you couldn't call the next town unless you went through these guys. So they would come into town, underprice their service, wipe out the local phone carrier, and then take over all those lines, take over the exchanges and everything. So it was a monopoly on the roll. And their, their plans for high-speed business in 1928 were uh, calls from one town to another used to be handled by one operator taking your order and giving it to another group of operators to put through. You now give your call direct to the operators who put it through and put it through fast while you're on the line. So they're not calling you back. And in 1933-34, when the Depression was in full swing, the Roosevelt administration came in and basically the antitrust laws and said, oh, you guys are a monopoly. You've crushed all the local business. We should really be um, asking to break you up. But this is a depression, and we can't afford that. Therefore, we'll make the following deal with you. We're going to regulate you as a public utility, and therefore you must provide uh, local calls must be free. And you must give concessions back to the Roosevelt administration. The fact that local dial was free in the United States meant that the, the net took off. 
because the dial-up didn't cost anything. The connection didn't cost anything. Right. And countries where there was where there was a charge on local calling, the net was incredibly restricted in the early 90s until most of those telcos were forced to do free local calling. So it went back to this. Now, of course, the argument in the late 90s was that Microsoft had become a public utility and should have been regulated like this, but we're not in that kind of an era anymore. That's very interesting. But, uh, yeah, th th this is sort of an interesting Another chapter. Huh? Chapter. Yeah. And um, these are other computing devices in the original, which people still use in China and are probably faster than calculators for doing small change calculations. It doesn't need power and it doesn't need software upgrades. Right. And then this is uh, from the, uh, a lot of, I get a lot of donations from people who work in the Pentagon. These guys seem to ha hang on to stuff. And this is the slide rule of the current director of the National Rotocraft Research, all the helicopter research for the U.S. <laughs> and he said, wow. this is my West Point slide rule. See, Dugan's second class. Uh, and we carried these on our belts like this, like scabbards around West Point. Yeah. And with it out in. Yeah, it's a K Sigma slide rule. It's the classic slide rule of, of that time, the late 60s. And um, then if you were a real super nerd, um, you yeah, could afford one of these. Yeah, that's just a big deal. Big, big deal. HP 45, reverse yeah. Polish notation. Serious tech erection. <laughs> this was this was um, this was an original owner. It was an original sales receipt. It was uh, 12, 12 and it was like five, five, four hundred dollars. It's a lot of money. Waz had one of those and sold it so that he could. Uh, yeah, Waz. Waz was really worried about this thing, this Apple company that he he'd been convinced to go join the company, but he had a great job at HP, and he was like. This thing could just go belly up in a month. You know, who, who could build a company around what we're trying to do? I better, I'm going to sell my most prized possession, and I can get maybe 300 bucks for it, and at least I'll have money. If the company goes belly up, I'll have to rent money for like four or five months, and I'll be able to survive. So he, he sacrificed this to give himself the confidence. So this, this basically was, this became the reason why he had this because then he could sacrifice it and, and, and have a little bit of a, a cushion <laughs> to go to Apple. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have left HP. Yeah. He couldn't have like a few hundred dollars in the bank. That's <laughs> and, uh, you know, back in sort of very, very few, I've got a nameplate from a, from a System 370 IBM mainframe, but I don't collect very many big systems except the one you see down below. But this is when labor in Japan was really cheap and they were wrapping core memory. This is 432 bits of core wrapped by, by little girls in factories in Japan. TDK, TDK memory, 1966. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing. This is in terms of our arcane collection. Uh, Henry Dakin is a uh, philanthropist in San Francisco. Dakin Toy Company. He's a physicist. Yeah. His whole family died in a car crash, and he's a physicist. He inherited millions of dollars in the toy company and all that. But he was a physicist, and he was into technology. And at the time, he was also doing re research with Stanford Research Institute on uh, remote viewing. Uh, there's experiments with Russell Targ and Hal Putoff and the ability to, it's like a Cold War project to see if uh, you could spy on the enemy through your mind. And this was a training device that was used for, for remote viewers. 1972. Um, wow. Yeah, at the time. Yeah, uh, well, Das yeah. Lincoln like. 
yeah, you, it's a basically an electronic calendar. It has a random generator, and you're you're supposed to uh, precognitively pre guess what the next date was as, as part of the training. Yeah. Like the random number generators are very big in psychic research at the time, and uh, this was one of the devices. For, speaking of psychic yeah. research, Ellen has a direct neuronal connection here. Yeah, back in '76, uh, uh, I was a medical student at McGill University up in Canada, and um, it was uh, where at the Mont MNI at the Montreal Neurological was where they were inventing the first body scanners. And uh, at the Allen Memorial Institute uh, across the street, uh, they were inventing this, uh, which is a uh, biosensor bio that plugs into your your uh, your, uh, your um, central nervous system. Wow. Galvanic skin response. Yeah, galvanic skin response. And the more that you relax, the more uh, the tone goes down. And through this, the idea was that you could begin to learn how to control biological processes like anxiety. by getting feedback. Yeah. And so a version yeah. of this was designed for the Apple II that plugged into the game port. It gave you some really cool pat patterns that showed you when your temperature was going up or your... Like if you get nervous, it goes up. Like if you hit yourself... Wow. <laughs> 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 yeah. does this a lot. <laughs> Oh, but that is, so that's why it's called yeah. the, the calm set. Yeah, and you could you could uh, use calm this, yourself down. This plugged in. Of course, uh, no one worries about calming themselves. Yeah. Yeah. We had all these devices that, that wired all the so time. Listening to that pitch all the time will drive you crazy. Not many good sounds created by the computer chips, and that's why they all sounded kind of you know like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. and even for the games, it was very limited palette of sounds. Uh, but um, that was one of the precursors. Now there are much more sophisticated ones out. And um, biofeedback has become a mainstay of uh, Western medicine now. They, they use these now for, for really pragmatic uses like train people to for urinary retention devices and yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, but this this was the origins of that kind of research. Wow. Uh, the, uh, the Apple II played a role in its evolution. Uh, uh, and also, in, in a similar vein, in the sports world, they tried. <laughs> they're falling apart. Yeah, these, these this was a Puma early Puma experiment with putting a a computer in a shoe. Like Maxwell Smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only this was uh, this was a uh, uh, an interface for the Apple II or the IBM PC that kept track of your steps. You're your, like a pedometer, yeah. measured how far you went and how fast you went, and set the data. And even work if you push the button. But how did you connect? How was it connected? Yeah. Still, the battery still works. Still still works. Wow. So was that, how is that connected to the... It has a, a little uh, port here. This so port... You're um, you running around with it. Or you're collecting it. You have to yeah, well, this port, you have to you, you collect the data. Okay. Have a little bit of memory. And okay. then when you bring it in, and you plug it into your PC and, and download it. And then really look at the data. You put it in your spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing would be very cool for kids. Uh, yeah, totally cool. And the rest are just an assortment of yeah. systems like the Valley Arcade, the Vectrex, which looks like something out of Blade Runner, and Nixon-era computer football with 1972, which really had very little computer in it, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of late 60s, yeah. quote, computer games. And you could build a computer out of springs, plastic, and... Computer. 
the, uh, do you know, anyone remember Coleco? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, you know what Coleco stands for? No. The quiz for the group. Connecticut Leather Company. <laughs> now why? why? Tandy, <laughs> Tandy was a leather company, yeah. right, yeah. Who, who were making tools, and they got into computers with Tandy Radio Shack. And so Coleco, having made a fortune on the Cabbage Patch dolls, decided that, yeah. well, leather companies just naturally, they go into computers. <laughs> and so they, so they, they blew... They, you know, look at Tandy. So yeah. they, they blew the um, the fortune from the Cabbage Pets balls on the Adam family computer for $666, you know, the sign of the beast, which is always the most popular pricing plan for a lot of these. And this came out, in, I think, this the Christmas of 83, and it kind of tanked the company. But <laughs> on Alan's holding a very so weird artifact. Metaphysician in the family, we had the gypsy Ouija board oh, <laughs> for yeah. Apple and Lisa. Yeah, it's plugged into the Apple Lisa. So you could do your metaphysical contact the afterlife, and you'd see. <laughs> Download them into your computer. I don't know if they ever got to networking it, but that would have been. <laughs> and now downstairs, we have another nerd meta metaphysical experience. We'll take you to, and then we're almost done, folks. The bathrooms may be calling again. Careful, the stairs are pretty steep. Sounds like it's raining. It is. As predicted. I'm going to go grab my camera so I can get that picture here. But here we have sort of the, the biggest member of the collection. Uh, the love seat. The love seat. You can sit on it. Let's grab my camera. Machine and you can you can go up you can go up into it and you can sort of poke it and pull boards out of it and whatnot. There's about eight or nine of these left, and this was Lawrence Livermore Labs, so it was um, basically the bomb labs machine. It's number 38, and there were about 72 made, and uh, they're really amazing machines. I mean the way they're they're built, uh, they're cooled up and down these these channels. And these, mm -hmm. this is the column of boards here, and here's here's this is a clock board, and those are the clock chips. And of course, the, the Cray systems were always under the tyranny of the clock, so these were one, two, and four foot lengths of twisted pair wire that carried the clock signal and wired the back plane. And a little old ladies in Chippewa Falls who were in weavers' clubs were hired to do this work. And two or three women would make a machine in about eight months. Uh -huh. And they had this culture of perfection. You know, at Weaver Clubs, it's like, you know, Muriel, you missed what? You missed the stitch. <laughs> you know, because they had this culture of, of complete perfection because everyone had a critical eye. And these are 60 something, 50 something women. And so Seymour was smart about who he hired to make these things. And so, you know, you can feel how heavy that is. That's on copper. Oh and that gosh. copper plate is one of the sort of patented things that Cray came up with to, to get the heat out of the chips and into this copper plate, which was then taken by edge cooling out with really uh, coolant coming up and down. It really, it really conducts it yeah. out fast. 
Yeah, one of my favorite stories I've heard about Seymour was his hobby. Uh, he apparently got a lot of his brilliant ideas while tunneling. <laughs> apparently, he liked to tunnel under his house, building, as in digging, digging, yeah. and <laughs> the gopher. Yeah, and like the greatest Skylog Seventeen, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had, you know, air systems and uh, crawl spaces and rooms and, you know, and apparently he really, really got into it. And while he, it was a meditation for him, apparently while he did it, he got new ideas. And you know, this, this, really this is a whole his out of Cray's brain. The, the guts of it were sort of visualized out of his tunneling brain in the exterior. He wanted to look like a piece of Star Trek. This is why Discovery Channel came here to do the science of Star Trek, which will be out this summer. Because this looks like, well, like the warp core or Nomad. And the multitronic plot. Multitronic plot. And in, in fact, if you, these, these panels are basically Naga hide over plywood. And if you went to the Desilu Productions, Desi, Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball studio, and you went into the Trek, the Enterprise Bridge set, and you took Captain Kirk's chair up, you'd see plywood and naga hide. Pretty much. <laughs> and, and, that's, that's, and so he used the same materials to make it look Trek-like. Uh, that's fine. So he was definitely a Trekkie. And, and this, is, um, this is the report that made Cray into a company. This is the Cray One Evaluation Final Report on Los Alamos. Which where they compared its performance, and they ran all their benchmarks and decided that they should buy it. And Cray had misgivings about so many military, you know, government buyers, but it sustained the firm. And uh, you know, this, this is this is this is the basically equivalent to the paper Kate writing admits yeah. <laughs> for Cray, yeah. you know, on a huge scale. You know, not classified or anything. And so um, that's the power distribution cabinet showing that it ran for 68,000 hours. These things are 10 to 20 million dollars in the in the time. And we need yeah. Yeah. yeah, you need a diesel generator set, and it's equivalent to a Pentium 3 600 megahertz today. Can do the same amount of maintenance. You turn this thing on, was it, it 30,000 a month electricity bill? Yeah, 30,000 a month in consumables to run one of these. And you need a full height subfloor to, to walk in under and service it because all the tubes are coming up. So you, it was very special to have one of these. Most of these were sold for scrap and melted for the gold in them. They were thrown in the crucibles and melted down and the gold was taken off. And you could get you know, $10,000 worth of value out of it. So there are very few left and, and there are none that that you can kind of take apart, that you can walk inside. Most people, a few companies have them in their lobbies and stuff like that. But they're very, very, very few. Of you think a few special effects lighting and a little rope lighting? Yeah, we could. Yeah, science fiction movie. Science fiction. Yeah. And let's get a picture of you all. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah, because it's sort of a, a traditional, we have sort of newlyweds kissing in the cray, and then we have. <laughs> <laughs> and I get a few without the flash because it always produces the best results. And I'll take one with the flash. And uh, yeah, you got one there. I'll get I'll get one and I'll, I'll let you get one. Okay, too. great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. Always. <laughs> And then there's a couple more things to show you and then we'll be done.
And hold it real steady because I turned the flash off. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You ready? Here we go. It looks like it did. All right. This one's going to take a minute to get rid of some of the juice. Okay. You want it with or without a flash? Oh, I think it's pretty bright here. Yeah. Do you know how to take the flash off on that one? Why don't you do that? Yeah. A couple other things to show you are some real oddballs. Yeah, and then we're done. I think that should be it. And if it does, it will touch it. Okay. I'd love to hear more of there we go. <laughs> Two. Good. Yeah. Got it. Great. Thank you. The other oddballs are this tower here is the largest S100 system ever made. It's about 300 and some uh, cards. In five days, wow. and with special bus, it's all God about copy pro parts. And it's a supercomputer made out of this, 100 parts. Yeah. But it's a multiprocessor with uh, 68,000 two per bay. Uh -huh. And it was done as a multiprocessor test bed, so for about, made for about 100 grand. So it's like a supercomputer of a hobbyist type versus the professional yeah. type. But it, the guy called up and said, I'm taking this to the dump. Uh, do you want it? And you've got S100s. And it's it's the biggest one. Stanford professor. And said, sure. You know, this is, this is the stand example of the largest of a whole line of the most bizarre extended bus that's yeah. ever been done in the S100 world. You know, and you almost went in the dump. It's just so... Yeah, stuff is going all the time. <laughs> they want. They want to move okay. to a low maintenance <laughs> And a couple, couple of other things in this room. Power This is our complete Macintosh network that we get working every once in a while, and. The Macintosh world, I mean, Apple's maybe 2% of the market now, but it's about 30% of the story, <laughs> the computing history yeah. and, the, and the characters and all that. And uh, so this is all stuff from a complete cubicle at Apple that we, we could reconstruct. It's an, an ATC's cubicle is like boxes of material. And the ATC was the, the local technical coordinator that kept things running inside Apple. And they had these banners and they had these little weird flags sticking up out of their cube. <laughs> and they were always the most gregarious, helpful people. And they would fix any problem. And it was a brilliant thing. There was no tech department. There was just somebody in your area that had the flag. Yeah. And in this room, there's the gallery of extinct companies, <laughs> which is mostly a multimedia gulch. And again, there was none of these posters made for the dot-com era because it came and went in about 18 months, <laughs> two years. And also in this room is copies of my book, if people would like them. Yeah. Just uh, grab, grab them out of these boxes, pass them out, pass them around for historians. So it's, it's the history of the entire multi-user, and I'm happy to sign them if you want. Maybe we'll get two just in case people want to. Yeah, you can take as many as you like. Because yeah, then we, then we write it over it. Yeah. You can take as many as you like. There's plenty. Yeah, I'd love to.
Okay, so, so we've got... This is where the whole multi-user world thing came from. Do you have a pen? Uh, I don't, don't have a pen with me. We'll, we'll go up to the house, because okay. I know there's certain bathroom needs that are probably arising. There's a certain raincoat need. There's a certain raincoat need. <laughs> oh. We're going to have to make a dash for the house. And uh, the last part of the tour is... Yeah, the last part is over here. You've got... Um, this is the rarest Cray supercomputer. This is a, the miniaturization prototype called the Q2. And uh, this was an 800-pound prototype uh, between the Cray 1 and the Cray 2 where they immersed the boards and they immersed the, the power supply. And there were three made, and this is the only one that survives, wow. called the Q2. There was the Q1, Q2, and the Q3. And it, it can go on a cart even. And a Kurzweil OCR system, one of the, the first-generation AI systems of the 80s. These are new donations here. A blue box, that's an Intel blue box, not, not the, not not the phone freaker box. Mm -hmm. And that weighs far too much. And the last part is Galen's, actually there's another room in here, but and there's this Pig 3.0 is there. <laughs> and this is Galen's tchotchke wall. Oh. And it's, people usually identify with something here that they use, all the tchotchkes of, of the era. And back when, you know, you'll tell your grandchildren that you used to go to actual buildings where people would be showing things about computers and they would give you free stuff. And yeah. <laughs> this really happens, a t-shirt pressed into the shape of text. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, painter and Tetris, the Soviet yeah. challenge, Tetris, and yeah, After yeah, Dark. And, so people have put stuff here. That's neat. And there you find yourself now at the beginning. Back at yeah, that's <laughs> the great Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And on the site, I tend to find people spend, some people will spend several hours on the site. They're just following the links, traversing. Because yeah. we did a bushy tree and we've done various methods to Keep people on the same on the site and going through page after page after page after page, mainlining it. So we know that we've got a good walkable exhibit on online. Mm -hmm. But it was all done through ad hoc methods and taxonomy, trying to figure out how do you classify things and how do you relate to other things. And yeah, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. The Smithsonian doesn't have a taxonomy. They they looked at the challenge and said, it's too big. Yeah. <laughs> we won't take it on. So we're doing it by by osmosis. If someone submits an artifact, either a virtual artifact or a physical one, we'll categorize it, build a new, basically a subtree on the site, and then find out what it's related to over By years. And they'll say, well, that's connected to this, and I'll okay, put a link. Interesting. So the, 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 the taxonomy is embodied in the site, and in 10 or 20 years, if keep doing it for another 10 or 20 years, it will tell the whole story. I mean, yeah. Methods to tunnel through all of that are going to be interesting, but... It will embody both the taxonomy, the story, the artifacts, everything in one mm -hmm. single thing. That's yeah, very interesting. One fun thing we did for the opening day was also to create a little montage video of the various machines of the 70s and put it to 70s music. <laughs> oh, cool. Really yeah. The video we still have is to put online? up online. Yeah, I think it is. We yeah. never did. We never put it on the site. Oh, that sounds we got to rip it and put it on the site. Oh, okay. It was beautifully done. <laughs> the yeah. BGs coming out. <laughs> 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 Because it's a whole era, and, and one of the things we've found with people is that they're 
reflecting about uh, their machine that it, that it stirs up memories from that period of time in their life. Yeah. And the other things they were doing, uh, including their relationships and their yeah. and it's really quite a trip down memory lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing that came through also was that uh, in the future, uh, this this in a sense is be like an early incubator or or uh, nursery for the artificial intelligences of the future. So, so in a sense, uh, <laughs> they're fighting over the perfect sleeping yeah, spot. They, they, <laughs> this is the first form of their early hominid type, you know. Like so Alan's, Alan's theory is in Terminator yeah. 9000 coming back, and you see it crashing through the time warp. If you run in here, it won't be able to kill you because it'll. <laughs> He'll be trying to kill you, and then he'll see the Commodore PET 2000, <laughs> which was shown in Rise of the Machines. You know how they trashed it. This is all ancient computers, and he trashed it. I go, oh, no. <laughs> Cruelty to vintage computers. <laughs> trashed a perfectly good. And someone emailed me. Since I think any form of artificial intelligence life form will have a very different perception space time than we do. Uh, but... Nonetheless, I think that these historical elements of it will be important to them. Yeah. You know, and who knows? Maybe they have a, a transcendent nature of perception of time where they're helping to guide the evolution of this. Yeah, well, that's really wacky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can tell I'm in Northern California up in the hills. Yeah. There you go. Reality is very strict. Should we ask the <laughs> you know, you, you, just a few miles up here, Ken Casey set out in 1964 on a psychedelic bus yeah, to right. go to the New York World's Fair. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of this area, oh, what, yeah. what comes out of here. Yeah, so. I went to school in this area. So, I'm so you're very yeah. familiar with the, <laughs> yeah. the cultural yeah. norms, yeah. the belief system. There's the valley. There's the, 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 the valley people, but then there's the mountain people. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And the valley people, some of them retreat yeah. to the mountains. Often, <laughs> <laughs> often. So, so that's the that's tour. And You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.